0: Welcome to Season 1, Episode 20 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties. Today, we're getting cryogenically frozen and taking a journey to a really stupid future. We're going to be joined by Edward A. Havens III of the Film Jerk Podcast to discuss Idiocracy, the 2006 Mike Judge film that showed us how bad society really can
1: be. And before we get into talking about what plants crave, watch Owl My Balls. And learn how a pimp's love is different from that of a square. We are Joe and Mark, two dudes who love talking about the future and how hilariously bleak it seems to be. After you listen to the show today, please visit our friend Edward A. Havens III of the Film Jerk Podcast. Edward is a living movie library who is bound to teach you something about a familiar film or cinematic gems that have been lost to history. And if you just so happen to have gotten here by accident and don't know much about our show, try searching for us on all major podcast platforms by typing in Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. If you're not following podcast websites, you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter by searching at Digital Dissect One. Our social media sites share more pop culture news and current information. So feel free to join the conversation. We once again, can't thank Edward enough for joining us to break down a fun film and to share his wealth of knowledge as he has many connections to the property.
0: Well, everyone, we have another special week for you. As uh, if you've looked at our Twitter page, we occasionally do polls and ask for your your help and kind of driving where we go to next. So today we're going to be talking about the Mike Judge film, Idiocracy. And we're actually joined by a friend of ours who, who actually re- reached out to us when we were talking about this poll. So I'd like to introduce you know, everyone here to, uh, who's listening to this show to Edward Havens of the Film Jerk Podcast. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you today? We're good. It's actually uh, it's a little bit later here. We're, we're based in Wisconsin. So yeah, Joe and I are almost past our bedtimes.
1: Yeah, um, I'm sorry. And it it is the last <laughs> school night for me. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm very sorry.
0: <laughs> oh, no, 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 it is not a big deal at all. Mm-hmm. Joe and I are both night owls as you can tell by, you know, just how my eyes look more and more like raccoons every day. So, do not feel bad. We're we're usually always up pretty late. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. But yeah, yeah, we're we're excited to have you on though. I really do appreciate the time and usually what we like to start off with when we're, you know, uh, joining forces with another podcast here always love to hear about, you know, your, your own story and how your podcast got started and, and to introduce you to, you know, to, to our listeners here, if you could walk us through a little bit of your, your origin story.
2: Okay. Well, uh, my name is Edward Havens. That's not actually my real name. Uh, I changed it when I was 18 to honor my grandfather, who was Edward Havens and my great-grandfather who was Edward Havens. So I'm I'm actually Edward Haven, Edward Arthur Havens, the third, but but just because, you know, uh, it's a long story. I'm not going to get into it. So uh, (laughs) when I was five, my parents divorced. My mom was dating a guy who owned a a junkyard uh, here in Southern California who wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, You may have heard of the film uh, that he eventually made called Gone in 60 Seconds. (gasps) No. so, (laughs) so, so, So when I was five, My mom was dating Toby Halicki, the writer, producer, director, star of the movie.
1: Oh, Um, my God.
2: So if you've seen the movie, I presume. Yes,
1: we have. Okay, Um. (laughs) So
2: early in the movie, there's a scene where there's a wedding taking place and there's a lot of the deals that lead into the rest of the movie are taking place during the wedding. My mom is the bride. (laughs) Oh, that is so cool. And then (laughs) then in the next scene, main drain and another partner are walking through a park and there's an establishing shot of a young boy wearing a ram's jacket and a ram's hat being chased by two girls i'm the little boy being chased <laughs> oh, oh so that is incredible so, cool. so when i was five i spent the entire summer between like first and second grade on film sets watching toby make a movie and it's like i'm gonna do that yeah and over the course of my life, I, uh, I, I would go to movies every chance I got, whether it was junior high, high school. I, me and my friends would go to movies two, three, four times a week while we're doing our film, our schoolwork and all that other stuff. So when I was 17, I graduated high school. I'm going back to L.A. I'm going to break into the film business. And absolutely nothing happened. So went back home for the summer, got a job in a movie theater. And ended up doing that for 34 years, working at movie theaters. So um, during that time frame, I got to meet a lot of filmmakers, talk to um, a lot of people, learn a little bit stories here and there about stuff that you don't read about online or in film magazines before online. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I turned like 50 a couple years ago, I wanted I wasn't I knew I wasn't going to be a filmmaker, but I wanted to use the knowledge that I had about these movies and process and the skills I would learned as a uh, as a manager to find the interesting things to talk about. Um, have you guys ever been to an Arclight Cinema or know about
1: Arclight Cinema? I have not been to one. It, uh, the, the term sounds familiar.
2: Yeah. Well, they, own, they until recently, they ran the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, which mm-hmm. you've seen in Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Uh, and one of the things they do with these theaters is they like to introduce the movies and uh, somebody gets up in, before the movie and talks to the audience, reminding them to stay off their cell phones and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's what I used to do at my theaters, where I would like to find little things about the various movies we were playing to get the people interested in the movie. Before, I mean, they're already there. By, they bought a ticket. They're interested. But just yeah. make it a little more interesting. So I've learned how to do a lot of research, where to find interesting reasons everybody knows about. And that's kind of where the the podcast came from. Uh, For years uh, with my website, one of the things I wanted to do was do kind of like a long form show or not show, article about a guy named David Putnam, who was the producer of like Bugsy Malone and Midnight Express. And he won an Oscar for best picture for producing Chariots of Fire. And in the late 80s, 86, 87, He was actually picked to run columbia pictures and he was only there for 15 months he got fired or quit depending on who you talk to (laughs) before he ever even got to release his first movie and the movies that he made at columbia it's like this guy wasn't an mba he was a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and a lot of the movies that he made you've never heard of because columbia has literally buried them oh and so and um I could well, let's see uh, for example have you ever heard of a filmmaker named Emir Kusturica?
0: Uh
2: he's a, he's from um, Croatia Serbia, Serbia Croatia area um, back in the 80s he was it was still Yugoslavia he had won uh, an Oscar and he had won uh, uh, the Palme d'Or at Cannes for one of his movies and this Hollywood studio executive this person who ran a studio Went to him and said make any movie you want i will give you the money and we will release it and so he made a two and a half hour serbo croatian language movie about gypsies hmm. the film is fantastic if you can find it but because <laughs> oh. but, because he wasn't thinking about what'll sell in america or what'll sell in asia or what it will sell yeah. in mm-hmm. germany He was looking at bringing global filmmakers into the American market to make their movies and find a way to get them out there and find their audience. It's a fascinating story. And so after a year and a half of doing the podcast, I decided, well, why don't I just do that as a podcast instead of, because I've already done all the research, I've got the books on him, I've done the research. So I did a four part mini series about David Putnam's time at Columbia and he's now lord putnam uh still lives in uh, london england and i actually got an email from his office after Ooh. i'd finished the the series and said if you would ever like to talk to lord putnam he would love to talk to you about the podcast uh which freaked me the heck out because that's not what <laughs> i was looking for i was just looking to introduce these movies you probably haven't heard mm-hmm. of um some you have heard of yeah. like ridley scott's um uh, God, now I'm blanking on the title. Uh, Someone to love me, mm-hmm. or uh, the one with. Uh, uh, now I'm putting myself on the spot. I can't remember. But you know, he, he made movies with Ridley Scott. He made movies with these great filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he 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 brought uh, Christopher Guest's first movie together, called The Big Picture. But you've probably never heard of it. it yeah, because and, and because yeah. because what happened was is that. Christopher Guest, before he became the Christopher Guest we all know and love with the the mockumentaries, he made a straight on comedy about what it's like to be a Hollywood filmmaker in Hollywood. And the weird part is you've never heard of it, even though it was financed and distributed by Columbia Pictures stars Kevin Bacon as the filmmaker and a whole bunch of other Hollywood comedy royalty. Because what happened is that the film got made, Putnam got fired. And a new executive, her name was Don Steele, came over from Paramount. And a lot of the movie that guest had written was about the problems he had with Don Steele at Paramount trying to get another movie made.
1: So she kind of buried
2: the movie because she felt it was disrespectful to her. But you can find it out there. If you listen to the podcast, I tell you where you can find all these movies if you can at all. Uh, But, for example, one of the movies that he uh, made that eventually had to get sold off to another company was uh, bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Oh yeah. But because, <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> but, but after, after Putnam left, Columbia didn't know what to do with it. So they sold it to another company and then that company went bankrupt and they sold it to, to Orion and Orion had this big hit. So that's where yeah. but these are things that, you know, even people who are big film fans today, don't know about these movies and know about these stories. And that's exactly why I am doing the podcast to get, you know, because everybody talks about back to the future, the Terminator, and Mm -hmm. which I say, even though I know very well that my next podcast episode where I'm talking with another guest, a friend of mine, we're actually gonna be talking about those two movies, but uh, (laughs) as, as, as a concept that we're talking about called grounded genre, which you can hear about more in a few that future episode, but we, you know, yeah. I focus more on things like uh, the chocolate war. You've probably never heard of it. Uh, it was, I was gonna say, you're you
0: were like this. Is, I can just looking at Joe and myself, I mm-hmm. we're both going, these should sound familiar, but they're we should, yeah,
1: they're,
0: they're going right over our heads. Yeah, but you are
1: you are a far more film highbrow than I was prepared yeah. for. I was yeah. so glad <laughs> that my 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 idiot uh self recognized Bill and Ted. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: But this, this movie, Chocolate War, it's based on uh, a, a pretty famous novel uh, that uh, was actually banned at a lot of schools in the 80s because it was so considered so subversive. Mm-hmm. And Keith Gordon, who plays Arnie in Christine, uh, mm-hmm. he took the money that he made from working with Brian De Palma on Body Double. Uh, no, sorry, uh, Dress to Kill. And bought the film, right? About uh, the rights to make it into a movie. He made this fantastic movie with uh, Ilian Mitchell Smith from uh, Weird Science. Uh, and mm-hmm. a lot of people you would recognize when you go, when you're done with the show and you look it up, you're going to see the cast and you'd be like, how do I not know about this movie? But because mm-hmm. the, the production company that made it, they were, they literally made eight movies in a year and went bankrupt because none of them were hits. And because, mm-hmm. you know, this company buys that company, buys that company over the years sometimes that nobody knows who even owns the rights to a certain movie anymore. And because the film wasn't a big hit, a lot of these movies kind of fall to the wayside. And because I was in my late teens, early 20s, when a lot of these movies in in the 80s happened, Mm -hmm. I was there. I saw them. I remember them. And so I want to share film history with people who should be aware of these, but they don't get talked about as much because what would you rather talk about? Back to the Future, which you've seen 50 times, I've seen 50 times, and you're familiar with yeah. it, and everybody has a connection, or a Chocolate War, which made like $300,000 when it released into theaters, and it hasn't been out on video in 25 years, nobody, yeah. nobody knows what to talk about, because they've never seen it. So that's basically the genesis of of the podcast. And uh, it's becoming harder and harder to find specific things to talk about, because Uh, a lot of it is now you have to go really deep into the, the history of research. And one of my favorite places of research is the academy library in Beverly Hills is still closed because of the pandemic. Mm
1: -hmm. So
2: it's like a lot of things that I want to talk about and want to do the research on. I can't do the research. So I got to find other things to write about or talk about now I'm going to back to the future in terminator because I'm the, the well is starting to run dry. Well,
0: the, the parallels to what you mentioned are, are pretty strong with idiocracy as well. Yeah. Um, From a, from a conceptual, like uh, from a concept standpoint um, to execution. And and so one of the things we like to do on, on this show is actually similar, but um, we tend to tell a little bit more of that history that uh, can be missed, Mm -hmm. but most people just, you know, maybe they don't they don't care to dig that deep like wh- wh- like uh, we've used this example before where uh we talked about joe's credentials with star trek and how he has a master's degree and and all these accolades and i have a two-year degree that i never finished right <laughs> so yeah. I-, I would i would say from film knowledge you've got that master's degree and we've got that two-year degree that we're we're haplessly trying to finish here but when it comes to idiocracy um j- once again these in routes that you've talked about and, and the history behind it um, it involves a lot of those same topics, you know. Yes. W- whether it is, yeah, like studio interference or um, burying a movie, right? And it is so odd that that happened to to Idiocracy. I mean, it's a it's a movie that literally got buried because of sponsors who weren't happy with the representation that they had in the movie, right? Correct. Um, so, just looking at a couple of the. The, the folks that they, they managed to convince to get into this film. I mean, we, we, we do for a fact that, uh, for example, like Carlton cigarettes and Walmart re- absolutely refused to be a part of it. Um, but the ones that did make it into it would have been, you know, Carl's Jr. We've got a, a parody on American express, which I think they called, uh, America, like U H H America express. Uh. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, America. Uh, America, America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the the ones that did make it into it, you know, they they weren't depicted in the, I guess, the most intelligent way. Uh, especially if you were H and R Block, uh, <laughs> or, or or any Starbucks. of these captured, <laughs> or Starbucks. Yeah,
1: Starbucks definitely definitely got the uh, the short end of the stick there for representation. <laughs> well, just a quick sidebar.
2: Uh, one of the titles that the film was working on before it finally became idiocracy was actually uh America
0: oh uh, yep yeah, <laughs> exactly yeah the, the working titles they used was America there was the I think 3001 was 3001. another one yeah yeah and so th- this this film did have a a bit of a hard time getting you know getting even from the the starter's pistol right like there's was, there was no starter's pistol. Um, we've talked about Fox a couple times on this on this show. Uh, mainly with TV series and how most things only get to one season if they're fortunate. Yeah. Um, in in this case, though, based on the pressure from the sponsors who didn't like the way that they were depicted, which is one of the reasons why people think that this may be why Fox uh, didn't distribute this film at all. Um, you know, that's that's one of the things that um, I didn't really know about the first time I saw this movie because I was one of the people who actually bought the DVD you know, when it was $5. Um, But you actually have a much closer connection to this property that we really wanted to, uh, to hear a bit more about.
2: Okay. So uh, back in 2003, uh, a website like mine, FilmJerk.com, got a lot of its information from casting notes, which are beef descriptions of movies or television shows that are being made along with descriptions of the roles they are casting and when shooting was about to begin. And sometimes there'd be a link with the casting notice. For potential actors to download sides for the roles, sides being a couple of pages from the screenplay, to help the actors with their auditions. Uh, but every once in a while, they actually had a screenplay for the movie available. But you'd have to pay ten dollars for it. So I'd enlist various friends not associated with the site to buy the script. Then they'd email me a PDF copy, and I would PayPal them the ten bucks. So one late uh, one day, late 2003, like right after Thanksgiving, maybe before Christmas, there was a casting notice for a movie called 3001, which in and of itself is not all that descriptive of a title. Mm-hmm. And had I not noticed that Mike Judge was listed as a director and co-writer, I would have definitely been eh, and, and just left, passed by it. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, it was one of the movies that they had a whole screenplay available. So I got the script. I sat down to read it. And outside of Steven Spielberg and Scott Kramer's uh, adaptation of a confederacy of dunces, I have yeah. never laughed so hard while reading a screenplay. And <laughs> I've, between like 2002 and 2005, I read two, 300 screenplays and maybe did script reviews on of a hundred of them on my website. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wrote up the screen, the review for the screenplay. And it was like, I, I'll see that someday, but. And the movie came together actually very quickly. The casting notices were published in December, 2003, and they were already Mm -hmm. shooting the movie two months later, which is usually a sign of a director not needing a whole lot of rehearsal with his main cast. He kind of maybe knew who he wanted and he got what he wanted and they got into it actually very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, the movie took a few months to shoot and I kind of lost track about that because I was working full time and I was married. And then I even moved from New York to Los Angeles. So Mm -hmm. it kind of, you know, and all the other things I was doing, it kind of left my head for a while. Uh, and then in August, 2006, it's the, I'm a manager at a movie theater in Santa Monica. Uh, it's the Monday before Labor Day weekend and we get our bookings for the coming week. And there's a movie we're scheduled to play and I don't recognize the title. Uh, it's called Idiocracy. so Uh, I don't have a poster for it. I don't have a trailer for it. So I'm thinking Mm -hmm. there, it's like, what the heck is this movie? So I hop onto the IMDb and lo and behold, it's that Mike judge movie. I wrote about two and a half years earlier. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that's, that's weird. Why doesn't this movie from a major studio not have any posters or trailers for it? Why haven't I been advertising this movie for months? If I'm going to be playing it, you know, Mm -hmm. because when office space came out seven years earlier, which was also from Fox, we had the posters and we had the trailers up for months ahead of time they were totally mm-hmm. behind it but this time there was nothing uh, but we finally did get one poster for the movie the day before it opened but <laughs> unfortunately the i'm i was usually the night manager and it came during the day and the the day manager saw it and it's like that's mine so he claimed it before I, he claimed it before i even got a chance to see the poster it was the one that you know was on the cover of the original dvd with the. The, the, the mocking of the Da Vinci uh, drawing. Yeah, man yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the benefits of being a manager in a movie theater is that you often get to watch the movies the night before they're released to make sure that you built them up properly and there's no problems with the print, like, you know, sound problem or a bad edit. Uh, yeah. But for some reason, Fox didn't even send the print to us until four hours before the first show was set to begin. Mm. So whoever the projection was that morning, and yes, we still had in 2006 needed to come in at like eight in the morning in order to build up the print and watch it real quick while he was still getting the rest of the theater ready for our first show at, at noon mm-hmm. um, and so because I'm working the night shift my wife is working her normal day job and she wants to see it uh, we didn't get to see it until like two or three days later um, mm-hmm. so and then that first day that Friday that it opened I get to work around five o'clock The first thing I do is look at the matinee grosses for the movie. So I can kind of see how busy we are with things and Labor Day weekend's usually not that busy of a weekend because people are going to the beach. They're going camping. It's that last weekend of summer before the kids go back to school and you kind of have to get back into the grind of things. You're barbecuing in the backyard. But at Mm -hmm. the theater and at the theater, when you're playing movies that are mostly several weeks old and the new films that open are usually bad films that are dumped by the distributor. So the Mm -hmm. numbers for idiocracy were bad, which was, was not that surprising because, you know, we had no trailers, we had no posters. (laughs) And if you opened up the LA times, they have a section in the times called the calendar section, which is where all the movie ads and all the uh, display ads for the theaters telling you the shows and the show times are, and usually a, a new movie we'll get a full page ad or sometimes two or even three pages ad, depending on how popular they expected it to be. Except the ad for idiocracy in the LA times was a quarter of the page, which was also very strange.
1: Well, this, yeah. this is like the equivalent of like getting an eviction notice in your basement cupboard. Yeah. Something like and that. then at the start of the story, your house gets knocked down and you had no idea it was coming. <laughs>
2: yeah. And so at the end of the day, yeah. five shows, we did like $500. And back then in 2006, our average ticket price was around eight bucks. So that's like 11 or 12 people per show on average. Yeah. Which is, is not good for a new movie, especially a Mike judge movie. So the next day my wife and I went to go see the movie in the matinee show. And one of the nice things about working in a movie theaters, you get free movies. So, uh, mm-hmm. as long as you still have to pay for your popcorn and your soda and your candy, but at least you get the movie for free. So. Uh, as long as there's room in the theater itself. And lucky for us, there was plenty of room in the theater. There was only about... <laughs> and, and the theater I was playing in, it sat 180 people. And there was, again, there was maybe 12 or 14 people in there. Uh, oh. But the those of us who were in that theater, we laughed our butts off. And yeah. in my script review, I, I was actually I said at the end of the script review, I would be shocked. If half of the things that were on the page ended up in the movie and I was, so i kind of already kind of know what's going to happen next because I've already read the script and I was shocked at how much of the screenplay actually made it into the movie. Um, there was only like one scene that I remembered that didn't make it into the final movie. Uh, you know, when Joe and Mm -hmm. Rita are in the suspension chambers, Mm-hmm. The base, yeah. the base, the base closes down. They build a fud ruckers on top of it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then, then they cut to a something else, and then you come back and it's a butt buckers. And then <laughs> yep. they cut to yep. something else, and they come back and <laughs> it's a, it's a butt ruckers. Yep. You know, and then it becomes, you know, that. Other yep. thing. it's building. Yeah. It's yep. building. <laughs> all, all of that was in the original script, but there was the secondary running gag that was supposed to be there. Next to the Records, there was supposed to be a baseball stadium. And Hmm. the first time they cut to the baseball stadium, the players would be playing baseball, as we all know, would love baseball. But as time continued, counting down from 2005 to 2505, the game would get more and more violent until it was basically rollerball without the skates or the rink. You know, there (laughs) would just be players with, you know, just bashing. There would be no ball. There would be no field. It would just be a bunch of people (laughs) bashing the heck out of each other with spiked baseball bats and and other things Uh, but other than that everything else was pretty much in there the way it was depicted in the movie and and it was and it was just amazing to me because there was so many things it's like how are they going to get this past the the people that they're mocking you know and then you have uh you know fair rights and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so um and so what I heard years later, and I don't know if it's true or not, because I've never approached Mike Judge to ask him, but I've heard that Mike Judge was personally mad at me for my script review because I gave away several of the things oh, in the script oh no. <laughs> that may or may not have been the objections that the, the people he was mocking ended up being objectionable about. I don't want to go to Mike Judge and be like, are you mad at me? And he'd be like, who are you? Well, if anything
0: if anything Mike Judge should be upset at the fact that well and and this is actually incredible that you even had it because there's only 130 theaters that actually got this film to show right um which was part of this this uh you know blocking from Fox to get this Mm -hmm. movie out they showed it to the bare minimum amount that they were legally obligated to show it to yeah um and so there's a lot of things that were kind of stacking against it from the beginning because it's already a low budget film the the, the film itself only cost i think 2 to 4 million dollars to actually make no actually wow. it,
2: it was actually about 15 million uh that, Oh it was okay yeah but what happened was is that uh he was plant the the actual production itself should have been like 30 million but he was yeah. able to get it down to 15 million by restaging things so yeah. it didn't have like for example, when when President Camacho and Joe are riding down the highway, and yeah. you see them waving at people, and there's literally nobody around, that was actually yeah. supposed to be effects where they were going to be in the middle of a city, that in the middle of D.C. riding to the White House or the the Capitol, and there was supposed to be throngs of people. But what <laughs> happened was is that but they ran out. Of, they didn't so much run out of money. Is that Fox kind of saw. What, how the writing was going with how people, how the corporations were gonna be feeling about how they were treated, and they kind of cut off the the budget. Yeah, while mm. while it was before he had a chance to finish it. So because he's from Austin and because there's such a strong community in Austin, Robert Rodriguez actually volunteered with his uh, Troublemaker Studios effects team, where they actually did like two million dollars worth of special effects for free to help oh, cool. a fellow, a fellow Austin filmmaker out. Yeah. So yeah. when it played in the 130 theaters, you know, it's in Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, and Toronto, you know, yeah. and a and hundred theater, 130 theaters. It kind of sounds like a lot, especially when you're in all these big cities, but you know, for somebody who worked in LA movie theaters for as many years, A normal big release movie would be 75 to 100 prints just in Southern California and another in 200, another 200 or so in New York. The film didn't even play in New York. Yeah. And then another weird thing, after its first week of the release, it actually lost about 15% of its theaters, which is unusual because most studios, you have to play a movie a minimum of two weeks, regardless of how well it does. And sometimes mm-hmm. in that second week, you'll split the screen with another movie like a kitty movie that's out at the same time that dies out after like the seven o'clock show. So you play like how to F- eat fried worms at like twelve 2. 30, 5, 7: seven thirty. And then you'd play Idiocracy one show at ten o'clock. Yeah. And then in the third week, it lost another 88 percent of its screens. It went from like 115 no. to 13 in just two weeks. And then it It, lost another, like, four theaters. And then it was gone after five weeks. And I actually had to go back and look to see how long I played it. I only played it for three weeks.
0: Yeah. And 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 I was was going to say, Dax Shepard, who who played, uh, you know, Frito, the lawyer, he was saying that um, even if you tried to call a movie phone during this time, they were – the film was titled Through Movie Phone – as untitled mike judge film
2: right that
0: like that's how you would find it if you if you ask for idiocracy movie phone wouldn't even tell you what it was
2: yeah <laughs> yeah so if so, you yeah. press uh yeah tell me what's playing at the man criterion which was my theater which is no longer there it'd be like you know for how to eat fried worms press one now for untitled mike judge movie press two now you know, that's, <laughs> that's that's what you'd hear you know, yeah. if you call the recording, I did the recording in my theater. So you'd hear, you know, idiocracy right at R showing at 12, 15 you know, whatever, but if you called movie phone instead, seven, seven, seven film or whatever it is in your, when you, what it was in your area. That uh, yeah, silk here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Untitled Mike judge movie. Press yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, yeah, they made things even worse yeah. when they just say like, took movie phone down and had some dude in his apartment saying random movies and still wanting you to press the button yeah and then you can't tell what he's what he's pressing because it's a film. He yeah. has no idea what they're doing.
2: yeah. so so it just it was de- kind of depressing because when you're playing a movie and it's a good movie, you want people to know about it. and people people come up to the box office like, what do you recommend? It's like idiocracy. That sounds stupid. Uh, okay? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but uh, and that's just the thing is that you know, uh, this in this day and age, and even back then, fifteen years ago, it didn't matter if you had Luke Wilson and Maya Rudolph and, and this great cast because a lot of them, you know, Maya Rudolph was big on Saturday Night live, but she really hadn't yeah. done movies mm-hmm. yet. And <clears throat> Dax Shepard, he would only done what punked. Was that? What yeah. He was none I much either. So, so, that yeah. point. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, and all the other, and, and all the other people in the movie were television stars or Terry Cruz was not a star yet. So, yeah. If you didn't know the movie was out there and you hadn't seen a commercial on television or seen the trailer and and before you went to see something else, you could do all the screaming. It's a, it's a really good movie, and they wouldn't care because they hadn't heard of it.
0: Yeah, and Terry Crews even had to audition five times for that role. By the way, <laughs> he had to do work wow. <laughs> to get into this film. Was oh, this still like um, when he was
1: like barely stopping being a bodyguard?
0: Oh, like he, he was like, still he, yeah.
1: Yeah, This, yeah, this is, was this is, was like very early in his career. Mm-hmm. Like,
2: yeah, he President he wasn't Camacho showing was, the pecs off. <laughs>
1: yeah, President Camacho
2: was like his biggest movie role to date.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, and 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 to be honest with you, um, for so for the folks that haven't watched Idiocracy, right, it, it's kind of sh- shown in this like pseudo mockumentary style, but not not in the way that you like like a this like a is Spinal Tap would, right? No, the, no, no. The the way that I like to. Sum it up is basically with the narration of Earl Mann, who is the voice of the NFL, um, very prolific Canadian voice actor, um, and he kind of sets the tone for this film, right? Like y- you know, it's a Mike Judge film, you know, there's ridiculous stuff coming, but Earl Mann's you know tone and the way that he kind of carries you through this um, can- it lends a little bit of legitimacy to this movie <laughs> if you're <laughs> if you're questioning it, walking in. Um, but I, I will say, you know, for a for a film that um, is, you know, obviously talking about a military experiment, um, they do borrow that familiar trope from spies like us, you know, where they they walk down like thirty flights of stairs to get to our main character, just like Dan Aykroyd, um, and and that's where we're you know we're introduced to, to. We'll just you know, I always call him Average Joe because he literally, sorry Joe, Super he average. literally is just yeah
1: yeah. Like we we see the test scores, he's right in the middle of the bell curve
0: yes i'm like five yeah luke, mm-hmm. yeah, luke wilson is as average as you could possibly get um, and he's and totally so that's fine why with he, that
1: he's content of being super average
0: yeah yeah he yeah. doesn't care about the lead mm. follower get out of the way you know logic he gets out of the way that's what he does <laughs> yep. um so i i thought it was funny that we kind of get that borrowed trope you know from Mike judge um because he tends to kind of go his own way but this was a nice familiar way to you know kind of suck us into this film but you know one of the the characters that i i typically always uh talk about this with my brother would be collins you know the the officer that they actually enlist here to uh essentially in, do all the intel for this operation this this you know cryogenic freezing and uh trying to save our best people you know in the military for a future engagement um, and so i'm not sure if you guys looked at that slideshow he puts up um i mean when he's showing the other army officers here, like what he had to do in order to get Rita, you know, who was played by Maya Rudolph, who is a a prostitute, <laughs> earning the trust of the a character, pimp. Was, not the actress.
1: Not the, clarify, the actress.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not the actress. But but earning the trust of the pimp was was probably one of the funniest moments in this movie. I'm not trying to detract <laughs> from what happens next, but the line a pimp slub is very different from that of a square. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> I lose i lose it every time I see that. Um, but just the sheer amount of slides he did. Uh, I think there was like something like 30 different slides of him hanging out with the pimp and partying. Yeah, with upgrade, and, mm-hmm. yeah, with 2Ds two two Ds. for a double dose of pimping. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I just thought it was hilarious that they... You know, they they put that much time just into this ridiculous reasoning for you know why it took so long to get these people for the experiment itself. But, um, but so Edward, just to give you a heads up on how we do this, you know, we find ourselves kind of covering this neo retro area of uh, of the late '90s, early 2000s. Right? There's a lot of stuff that kind of got missed here, and so the general vibe of idiocracy, I think a lot of people didn't even really know about. Um, as it's, it's a parody of, you know, modern culture back in 2003, 2004. Right.
2: Um,
0: and so what I found really funny about this, though, was that as they're kind of going through the societal changes and how we're already seeing intelligence kind of go down and we see other things become more prominent, right? right. Um, specifically, we've got hair loss and penis enlargement as the, the most important focuses here for, for modern society. Um, for me, I find that to be the most terrifying because it hasn't really changed a whole lot in fifteen years, has it?
2: no I, I i remember when I was watching it and and read the original screenplay almost twenty years ago. A lot of people find it to be so prophetic, and for many years, I kind of argued against that because for me, it was my 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 mind was a prophetic was something like somebody who comes up with an idea that is so wild. And so outrageous that there's no way that it could actually happen. And -hmm. then it does. And for me, this is Judge looking at society 20 years ago and saying, Mm -hmm. this is the path that we're going to be going down if we aren't more careful. Mm -hmm. And then we completely ignored everything and exactly (laughs) ended up exactly where he said. Well, not exactly. I mean... You, you, you can't get anything better than a, a Frappuccino at Starbucks yet. But, <laughs> but a lot of, a lot of the story, you know, I mean, a lo- so much of it tangentially became tr- more truthful and, you know, where even last week, you know, they're talking about, you know, more people are not having babies and yeah. then, and then mm-hmm. oh, except for, you know, a certain segment of, of, poorer populations where you know they're still having an uptick in births while everybody else is going downward where even a couple days ago China announced that they're suspending their two children per family rule because there aren't enough kids now in China to keep the country populated to where they want to be in terms of production 20 years from now and so Mm -hmm. in so many ways the movie warned us in a very light and comedic way, exactly where we were heading. And for many years, I didn't see that as a prophecy. But then I realized, no, it's a prophecy and it came true way too quickly.
0: Well, I was looking for uh, the most common baby names, you know, Mm -hmm. every year, ever since I saw the movie. So fortunately, Cleavon and Upgrade did not make it, you know, into uh, those lists. We can, we can only be so fortunate, but that's
1: true. And I'd be seeing lots of upgrades right now, if that were the case yeah <laughs> well, <laughs> well it, so it, it, it's an interesting
0: lead-in though right so joe bowers is put into this you know this cryogenic freezing experiment in the military it gets forgotten immediately because our friend collins was found to be you know working with pimps and gets arrested so they shut down the program well he stays frozen for you know several hundreds of years and so that's when we're introduced to you know the modern society of idiocracy which encapsulates a lot of the things we've just talked about um you know higher populations of lower intelligence um, and what I thought was really funny in presentation was how yeah Joe is an alien to this world you know just like Philip J Fry in Futurama was when he comes out of his deep trees it's the same thing for him you know he, he walks up to a crowd of people and they immediately don't understand his language because that's how much English has degraded over hundreds of years um which you know what I I wanted to save this question because if you if you think about generations and the differences between languages right i mean there's a major difference just between two generations of people let alone hundreds of years so when thinking about this and we're going to remove even just the the idea of idiocracy for a moment how believable would you guys think uh how hard would it be to communicate with someone you know 500 years into the future
1: I'd imagine language had shifted. I mean, even look at like, um, I mean, Shakespeare was talking about how like him watching language change around him, and he felt uncertain. So, uh, probably darn near impossible in five hundred years. Yeah,
2: I guess using Shakespeare as uh, and his plays as uh, a a barometer for where language was back then, because that's almost five hundred years ago. You can still see. how much language has changed and how much it stayed the same during the time frame. So I'm, I'm a little more hopeful that even though, (laughs) even though society has seemed to have gotten a lot dumber over the last 400 years from the, from Shakespeare's time, you know, he came up with so many words that we still use today, you know, 500 years later, that didn't exist until he put it in a play. So I don't think it would be as extreme but that's yeah. just me being ever so hopeful because I would fear of <laughs> how much society degrades over the next five hundred years if things continue to head down. I don't even think humanity would make it five hundred years if things kept going the way it did. Yeah. And then if you look at it by itself, I mean, three th- or uh, idiocracy is just encircling one little part of Texas or and Washington or the you know, but this, this has to be the entire world. If this, this couldn't just be happening in America, this has to be happening around the world.
0: Oh yes, it is. Yeah. It's a series of grunts and uh, guttural noises. And I think they even have Valley girl thrown in there somewhere.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so I just fear that not just if this happens in America, but this happens globally, how much trouble are, you know, our ancestors, five hundred years down the road, are they even going to be able to survive if they become that much dumber during the time frame? I'm kind of shocked that's to be honest, I I'm shocked that it, they might still be alive in 2505 that they hadn't blown <laughs> themselves up accidentally, <laughs> you know, by then. Well, I think
0: the the, the part for me that I, I I actually thought was the the scariest wasn't really even the language aspect of it that's why i wanted to try to normalize that part of the conversation because languages change over time right mm-hmm. but the the parts that i thought were the scariest was seeing how commercialism is amplified into almost every aspect of society now right like uh frito the uh Dak shepherd you know who's who ends up being joe's lawyer um when he ends up in the future he talks about how costco is where he went to law school and, you know, y- y- you see how, um, you know, like Costco is also like a hub for the, the train station. Right. I mean, and then Carl's Jr., for example, you know, yeah. Carl's Jr. literally takes custody of people's children when they can't afford food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, um, obviously, th- this is not something I don't really ever see truly happening. Um, but... it. <sighs> I don't know in a lot of ways uh etiocracy ends up taking some of the aspects of modern culture and showing us how they really haven't changed all that much um I wanted to specifically point out the police brutality side of this um if you notice throughout the you know the film um they're very quick to you know assault people um in in Joe's you know uh specific example he gets maced by the police almost every time <laughs> he interacts he speaks, with them. Yeah,
1: he actually starts talking. Yeah. It's it mazed. <laughs>
0: yeah, and because of said language barrier, they, you know they they almost view his his sense of language as an insult uh, to them, as if he's talking down to them. So, um, yeah, the, the rampant commercialism I thought was was very interesting, um, especially because of the the impact of of Brando, uh being present in almost everything. Um, to the, to the point where it's even, you know, it's it, Brondo is a Gatorade, you know, knockoff for those who haven't seen it. Um, but Brondo infiltrates society to such a point that it, it replaces water. I mean, it's, it's in, it's in the, the drinking fountains now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's got <laughs> electrolytes. It does have electrolytes <laughs> and they're, they're what plants crave, which is why they're in irrigation.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it has what plants crave. And the funniest part about Brando, um, if you actually wanted to buy it, they did make, uh, I think, something like 10,000 cases of it back when the movie first came out. Um, If you wanted to buy Brando just to test it out, I think it's like $125 a can now. So for those (laughs) of you who who have the money, (laughs) you could go after it. Um, One of the things that I, I, I wanted to just mention, though, because if you wanted to paint a picture for people, Uh, Mike Judge said that when they're creating the backdrop for this, this movie, they said they wanted to have a visual version of essentially what a NASCAR advertisement would look like. So they wanted the advertisements to be um, like candy packaging, hand painted signs and Japanese pop culture as the main influences, um, which I think they absolutely nailed in, in the representation of all the advertising here. Um, just, just totally ridiculous, seizure-inducing. You know, they're they're putting ads on eighty percent of TV screens, just like they talk about in Ready Player One is what they want to do mm-hmm. <laughs> in the future. So it's just kind of incredible how how ridiculous you know society becomes. Um, but once again, I'm looking inward here, right? We talk about how ridiculous society became here. Really, all it did was amplify the sensationalism that we have in today's society i mean you already mentioned the the restaurant side of it uh with their naming standards but i'm referring more to things like all my balls the reality tv show that they show <laughs> <laughs> where the the main character just keeps getting hit in the balls every every few seconds i mean to me that didn't really seem that far off from things we were going to get uh you know like fear factor or these naked and afraid shows that we're still living that now, aren't we?
2: Oh, very much so. Uh, I mean you see, you know, the the biggest hit film in the movie is is ass. You know, when <laughs> just, yeah, just a dude's ass. <laughs> you know, and and, and best screenplay. Yeah, best screenplay. And there is, <laughs> you know, as somebody who who's been a, a semi-professional film critic for twenty years is, I've seen a lot of bad movies that I would rather sit and watch ass for two hours than watch <laughs> yeah. that. So so seeing, the, you know, some of the things that it, it, it parodies, it doesn't actually seem like much of a parody because there's some really stupid things that are happening in reality. And I think he just, he takes it to a logical assumption of if if the world's going to become that dumb, that, uh, you know, that's, this is where we're going to end up. Yeah, but then you look at, you know, Brondo, not only did Brondo become a real drink, uh, there's actually a beer company called Drake uh, Brewing, that actually has a Brondo beer. (laughs) Today, you could go, um, you can go to a a certain uh, stores, I I forget where I saw, I forget where I saw it, but I actually was in a, in a, in a beer uh, store you know the one of those places that caters to uh, craft <laughs> yeah. brews mm-hmm. and and basically it's like it even sells itself as like you know it's a, it's a if i'm i'm looking up my notes now it it sells itself as a kettle sour pale wheat ale then we kick it in the balls with lime leaves and the zest of lemons <laughs> and lime and this is a real beer that you can buy
1: right now Ooh, so do, do the do the lime and other zests make it as green as it is in the movie uh he, actually yes <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant and and
2: and the way they sell it is they actually have a guy dressed like president camacho with the big metal around his chest with the yes flag pants standing on a forklift holding cans of brondo above his head <laughs> and Uh, yeah but i mean but now you're taking a a very much cult movie yeah and you're creating real products yeah that are in that are that you can buy today in stores and it's like that's where our society has become and i'm not saying it's a good or bad thing i try brondo the beer yeah (laughs) you know but it's just like it to me i still sometimes um i i see what's going on in our world where whether it's prisons that are run for profit or mm-hmm. beer that is made to look like something from a movie and all the other ways that that things are marketed to us or sold to us is as acceptable it kind of blows my mind and and i just like how much how much is the movie re- you know really fake and how much of it is really a, a documentary from the future Well,
0: and you bring up a really good point, right? Because as consumers, we're tricked by the same things that people are tricked by in idiocracy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for the same reason that MSG is bad for you is a myth, right? The same reason that uh, people buy things that literally just say all natural now or Mm -hmm. gluten-free, you know, these are the same building blocks that we fall for all the time. Mm -hmm. And based on the last, you know, 45 minutes of discussion here I'm assuming all of us you know have have at least you know achieved uh, a grade school to high school education here we've probably fallen for those same tricks so I mean,
1: don't tell me blueberries aren't superfoods mark
0: <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> yeah yeah Joe still believes that birds aren't real and that they're just a government conspiracy too. So drones, uh, everywhere
1: yeah, which is also why you out. know uh, the chips and vaccines are completely meaning this because we already have birds that are drones we don't I mean, need that they're already watching us all the time
2: <laughs> well we already have things in our pocket that hear us and see oh, us yeah. all the time mm-hmm. but, but and it, yeah yeah but for me you know uh going to that it's like um my sister-in-law is a um a scientist she uh do you know cuties those little little yeah. mandarins they can yeah she was actually on the team that created that
1: oh, and wow. oh. everybody
2: but you know everybody loves cuties because they're delicious they're juicy but those are a genetically modified organism. And there's so many people who freak out. And I see so many things like non GMO non GMO. And it's like, GMOs aren't actually all that bad, because what are they doing Mm -hmm. is they're just taking out little bits of things to make it better for you. Mm -hmm. So but you know, uh, and so it frustrates me when I see non GMO, because it's like corn, you eat a, a corn on the cob today, somebody took other plants and without you know the modern technology turned it into the corn you enjoy today Mm -hmm. wheat is a genetically modified organism from like a thousand years ago it's just now they're doing the modifications in a very specific and precise manner but most of the food we eat today comes from a genetically modified organism from hundreds of years ago where Mm -hmm. a farmer bred two different things to create something else because of necessity of The land he was growing it on or because he needed something that yielded more crops and so it just frustrates me to see people being sold this are all gmos good for the people no probably not no yeah but they're not as bad as what they're being sold to so when i see something as non-gmo i just kind of throw my heads in the
1: Hands in the air, and
2: he's like, "Come on, mm-hmm.
1: yeah." Just, I do thing. just my favorite like sourdoughs to buy, which I, was before the dumb craze. Um, mm-hmm. Is that is a non-GMO project, and I, I, it hurts every time I buy it. It is really good bread, mm-hmm. but I am very mad at myself <laughs> that I'm buying it.
2: I mean, if it's uh, good, I, it's good.
1: Yeah, now, just enjoy it. Well, mm-hmm.
0: but it's it's funny that we should get into the topic of agriculture here because this is one of the things that drives pretty much the entire second half of idiocracy right so we're introduced to this this you know ridiculous culture it you know the the entire society is dumbed down to the point where they can't even solve the simplest of problems which would be growing their own crops uh it it bleeds into modern politics and it's one of the biggest issues you know that is facing terry cruz's presidency is Dwayne elizondo mountain dew herbert cabacho and so I thought that was hilarious to me that, you know, when when you and I talk about the good old days, and it doesn't matter how old you are, the good old days mean something to someone, right? Right. Um, when, when I talk about the good old days, you know, I think about being able to do a manual process with a computer where I can type in a command code and just MS-DOS, right? And be able to pull up something without being able to just click on it. You just type it in and you know what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, for previous generations, this type of thing would have been fixing your own clothes, you know, uh, building machinery without a, a guide. You know, these are the types of things that that to me didn't seem that that crazy. That the people in Idiocracy would forget how to do because they've never had to do it, and it's it's not unique to just that part in the movie. So, like there there was a point in the Idiocracy universe where people were smart enough to automate technologies and create them in mass. And so I think that was the craziest part of this movie was that somebody did make like, you know the automatic uh, floor sweepers that, you know unfortunately got stuck in one position but (laughs) there was other things like the the, the hospital system that had push buttons to tell you where to go to get the service for what you needed to have. Um, So that's once again, going back to the agriculture uh, conversation I thought that was probably the most interesting aspect of idiocracy was that there was a point in between now and then where somebody knew how to uh, basically create these automations and and make society not have to worry about these things anymore. And that's the part of it that I always wondered, how long did that take for people to completely forget these skills in between? I mean,
2: two or three generations easy
0: (laughs) At, at, (laughs) at minimum but but to kind of play off of what we were saying earlier with you know with the people who have kind of been uh distorted by what was normalcy you know in in the the whole you know brondo slash electrolytes conversation everybody seems to go wait you want to put water on the crops from a toilet
1: why would you want to do that (laughs) it's terrible
0: (laughs) yeah somebody told them that at one point in time uh granted it was mostly because Brando, I'm pretty sure, bought the FDA is what they said in the movie. And, <laughs> they, and they basically privatized regulation. But either way, I mean, it, it doesn't seem that crazy to me.
2: Oh, well, that but, could never happen in America no, today.
0: No, no, mm-hmm. no. How, how could it? I mean, uh, honestly, I thought the most damning aspect of idiocracy is the fact that we really are just seeing the problems of the future that today. we are facing today. Yes. Yeah, it's like <laughs> dipping
1: dots, Mark. Your favorite.
0: Oh. Uh, Edward, I just want to let you know this is another private battle that we reference on the show. Okay. I just don't believe. I don't believe in dipping dots. I just don't. I think they're a ridiculous uh, confection that no one needs.
2: <laughs> I but, don't uh, disagree. I don't disagree with you there, but as <laughs> a theater manager who has previously sold dipping dots, <laughs> dipping dots sold enough where they helped my commission as a theater manager so i am not going to knock (laughs) dipping dots and the people who enjoy them because the people who enjoy dipping dots really like dipping dots yes just like mm -hmm. yeah just like people who love twizzlers really love (laughs) twizzlers and i will never understand that because to me they're worse than the wax lips with the little oh yeah you know know, for for halloween that people you know it's like i love my red vines i cannot stand twizzlers but Mm -mm. i've sold enough twizzlers in my life where it's put money in my pocket i'm not going to complain about it
0: i i took a bite out of those enough times where i think after the fourth or fifth time i was like you know what probably can't eat these anymore (laughs) but if you love your dipping dots
2: More power to you. Oh, yeah. You do you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, we we try to keep things as spoiler free as we can on this show, just in case someone hasn't seen this yet. But what I would like to to get into a little bit here is: do we think this is where we're headed? You know, as a as a world, not just as one nation here. Because when we start to look at the the issues of today. And we're looking at the concept of mega cities here, not to be confused with the mega cities and the the judge dread property that we just covered a few weeks ago.
1: Way to kill my hopes, Mark. Well, it was right up and then (laughs) knocked them right down.
0: (laughs) Well, mega cities are now referred to as having populations of 10 million people plus, right? Like, and the issues that they're facing right now are the exact same things that idiocracy faces. Like their number one issue is just managing their trash. Uh, That's, that's what we're already seeing across the world right now. Um, and so looking at the the sensationalized news too, you, you remember seeing the bodybuilders, and I think they had uh, women wearing corsets on their news stations as well. Honestly, I think we've already got that one checked off the list too. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: <laughs> I mean, I've seen uh, my fair share of uh, South American weather women to know that that is definitely a true statement. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. One of
2: the more popular things on the internet is the naked news where <laughs> mm-hmm. women read news while they take their clothes off and people
1: pay money to see that. Okay. Hey, yeah. you do you. I mean, Prince dead. Journalism is doing what it's doing and uh, this is what they need to, do, to survive, apparently. Yeah. So,
2: well, you know, so, yeah. Since, you know, when you say sensationalized news. You now it's like, well, you know, yeah, they've been doing that for years where they, before they used to just have a pretty young woman read the the news at local stations. And now, you know, you have people on the internet reading the news while they take their clothes off. So yeah. yeah so since you know, sensationalized news is, yeah, we're, we're past that already. I mean, how much, yeah. how much worse can it be? And then in a mega city, I'm L.A. born and bred, raised here, lived here most of my life outside of a few years in New York and while my wife was attending Berkeley. But I remember Mm -hmm. when I was younger, there used to be a divide between Los Angeles and San Diego, where there would be Mm -hmm. nothing for 30 or 40 miles. My wife and I just went to uh, went down there a few weeks ago uh, to see some family. And I can't remember more than 2 miles of that entire 100 mile trip where there was no housing and no strip malls and no car dealerships where it really is LA and San Diego are pretty much about to become one gigantic city even though you know with 18 different area codes for their phones yeah. but there's almost no separation anymore where it's all yeah. just one big area which of course demolition man told us was going to happen. Oh, of
0: course. yours San Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Taco Bell is taken over. Just wait. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so but that's just yeah. something that that it's happening where we now have cities in 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 Asia that are 30, 40, 50 million people and you I can and it's just where a bunch of s- smaller cities just kind of became one gigantic city. So is this where we're heading? No, we're already here.
0: And you're dead on to it because I I lived in, in uh, Southern California in the mid uh nineties and we we were a a road trip family. We were constantly on the road. So, um, you know, for us, the routine was to drive from, you know, essentially Barstow up to Victorville and trying to figure out, okay, how do we stay sane on this three hour drive? Right. Um, We made that very same drive. Like you mentioned from San Diego to Los Angeles. And yeah, it's like, what do you even do while you're, you know, waiting in between, <laughs> getting to one, you know, getting from one destination to the other, and so, yeah, I, that was that was something I started to do the math on too, because um, you know, Joe and I live in Wisconsin. Madison is our state capital here, right. and it's the same idea. Even in Wisconsin, we're starting to see um, like Madison as a city expand into these outlying areas to where there there's very little you know blending anymore. It's just one big city. Yeah, uh, and so, yeah, I, I definitely think we're already there, especially in a day and age where we're seeing consistent droughts every year. I mean, you guys, you know, brownouts better than we do. Uh, you know, here in, <laughs> in Wisconsin. Yeah,
2: yeah, we have a we know a thing or two about
1: brownouts. We we got Governor Schwarzenegger because of brownouts. <laughs> <laughs> and one day, President Schwarzenegger, so you can get that Memorial Library that we saw in. Uh, in uh, was it yeah, Running Man? No, yeah. Running Man. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Running Man yeah but then, yeah,
2: it, yeah. but that's the thing is that you know i mean i i, I want to go to japan someday japan's so big i think it's I, last time i read it's got more than 38 million people in just tokyo in just tokyo yeah. and tokyo you know it's like how do they survive because it's not that big of a nation yeah and and Probably so f- i look yeah and then so that, that's one of the things that i worry about is, for for future generations is where you know you what you see the start of idiocracy where you know it's just this giant trash heap giant trash heap that eventually collapses and that's how joe escapes from cryogenic freeze but you know where are we going to put all this stuff because i i see it when i'm t- walking my dogs every morning where i just see when it's time for the trash day where people just have all of this stuff they're throwing out it's like how do you accumulate so much stuff in your trash bin over a course of just seven days and then multiply that by millions and millions of people in Los Angeles and then millions and millions more in the outlying areas and then 300 million people all across the country. Where are you going to put all that trash? It's just like, we're going to bury ourselves in trash. We're now building communities on what used to be trash heaps.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I, I, I hate to, draw a parallel between Crocs and trash but this is one of the things that Mike Judge actually tried to call his shot on here was back in 2004 um, he he saw Crocs for the first time as many of us did and he tried to say these things look ridiculous I think everyone would be wearing these in this this dystopian idiotic future of ours (laughs) Yep. Um, (laughs) of all the things that he did call in this movie I am happy that that Crocs were not one of the winners out of all of those things. I, I mean, still see I, Crocs
2: every day. Oh. You know, <laughs> people every wear them. Day. Hey, no, people I, wear them. Look at me wrong. They, they wear them. Yeah. No, but in L.A. they're still big. They oh, haven't no. gone away yet. We, no. you know, we have not dodged that bullet yet. Maybe, maybe in Wisconsin, sure, but in Los Angeles, I see <laughs> three-year-old kids. I see eighty-year-old grandmas all every single day and i don't go out every day but just in my own neighborhood walking my dogs i see people wearing crocs on the street while they're walking their dogs or or watering their lawns or washing their cars they're still here they haven't gone they haven't gone anywhere yet and i just see them and it's like why you know uggs is a different story thankfully uggs are starting to go away but crocs are, are still here
0: yeah. Crocs were something I just was hoping we co- turned a corner on, but I just realized I, I haven't been out to SoCal in quite a long time. So I'm sorry to hear that, that you're, you're still seeing those a lot. Yeah. <laughs>
2: they're, they're, they're horrible. They're ugly. I don't care how comfortable they might be. They're, they're a joke, but if you love well, them, you do you. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know what? They're not a sponsor. We're not trying to drag them through the mud, but same nope, time, hey, they're good enough for the God of
1: Thunder. I mean, Thor wears them. <laughs> true, so how not. bad it's can true. they really be? Have you well, met
2: Thor? He's got yeah. some questionable ideas.
0: <laughs> 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 well, a couple of things I like to leave off on here because you know there, there are some things that date Idiocracy, even for trying to call the future. One of the big ones is that 2004 was a time pretty much before social media had, had hatched out of its egg. And so as you look through the world of videocracy, I mean, if we had to rewrite it for that aspect of, of what we now have, right? Um, where do we think social media would have fit within this film had it been made maybe about 10 years later?
2: I think social media would be dead by 2505 regardless. I just see it as one of those things that it's here and like so many other things in the past it'll just eventually disappear be replaced by something else that will be replaced by something else that will be replaced by something else so what we see as social media today i don't think it's gonna i think even in in reality it won't last 500 years because i you know aol didn't even last 10 years and that was pretty Mm. much our our closest thing to social media at that time, because mm-hmm. 2004, when the movie was made, we didn't have MySpace. Facebook was just a couple of colleges. Mm-hmm. It hadn't, you know, and, and Twitter was still a gleam in, in, in somebody's eye. It hadn't, wouldn't be born for another two or three years. So mm-hmm. I don't think social media as we know it today is going to be around in, in 50 years, let alone 500 years. So I, I don't see it as being that big, a, a, a a missing piece. Joe, what about your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I mean, I've in the same boat when you look at it, like even look at, like, um, I guess like social media equivalents from when we were like, we were kids and we were, you know, dialing up to get the internet, uh, on on Friday nights because we were that cool. And you'd go into like a chat room, which that was not really around anymore. Um, instant messaging services where it was literally just aim or it was just, uh, Microsoft as a messenger, those are basically dead. Um, and you've got like equivalents of things that kind of work like that now, but they're like, you know, a part of the social media websites. Um, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm in the same boat as Edward here is that I think, um, in 500 years, hell, even probably like 20 years, it's going to be something completely different or even look at like, I don't know, look at like, um, I look at my students now, and, like, they're not on Facebook. They're not on Twitter. They're not even, they have, some of them aren't even on Instagram. They're using, like, they're, Snapchat is something different. I mean, granted, we use Snapchat, too. But, like, they're, like, snapping or they're TikTokking, and that's different than what the social media were that we were used to that we consider, like, the popular ones. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's going to continue to change, and social media will just be something different. And who knows, maybe it'll just get sucked up into the machine um, where it's going to be some sort of, like, corporate thing. Uh, that's around and instead of having, uh, well, maybe it'll be like, uh, uh when you had your net providers trying to set like, basically like speed highways for internet access, mm-hmm. where instead of having social media, uh, you you'll get something social media like, but it's at the expense of what you're willing to pay for your internet, like highway speed. And you'll get access to that type of media and it'll be something that doesn't look like what we have now. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, like I remember when I first got on the internet back in like 93, 94, you know, yeah. we didn't have URLs. We had Usenet. Do you remember Usenet? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> I do. You know, so <laughs> yeah. you know, uh one of the first things that my experiences with the internet was, you know, rec.art.movies. And uh that's where actually I uh I met Drew McQueenie. He and I were um were administrators on the the rec art movies usenet because we were so we were that's what we were using before there was an ain't it cool news or yeah or or dark horizons or any of the websites where you got news then i mean and even then look at all the websites that when you were growing up how many of them still exist
1: spacejam.com (laughs) <laughs> yeah, one of the Hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, but,
2: yeah, yeah, but even they've even changed, they even took that and put it in, you know, now it's hidden inside the, the mm-hmm. new Space Jam experience. But, you know, yeah. do, do you remember Corona's coming attractions? No, I don't. Uh, oh, I don't actually. I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and this was like 95, 96. So basically, uh, um, Patrick Surreal, I think if, if I remember his name correctly, it was basically what he did is that Um, People would send him news. And so if you wanted to learn about the new Star Wars movie, there was a page that had all of the rumors and confirmed entry. So it was basically like a Wikipedia in 1996. And so and the ways I remember Corona is because I actually contributed a lot of information to Patrick at the time. Uh, Ain't it cool news? I was actually one of Harry's earliest spies. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which name it was, but uh, I didn't do it very long because. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm glad. I'm. I'm glad. I'm. I'm past that. I'll just. Yeah, say. got too hot. It got too yeah, hot. Yeah. But that's eventually why I created my own my own website, Film Jerk, was because it's like, why am I feeding all of this information that I have to all these other websites when I could do it myself? Yeah. And then I then I discovered just how hard it is to actually run a website.
0: well you know outside of the the social media conversation um within the legal system and the political system that we see in idiocracy this is one of those things that gets i mean absolutely dissected to the the lowest possible levels mostly because of the parallels that people have been drawing to you know uh president camacho president trump and and how you know, how the two are very similar and their presentation, right? And how they behave. Um, the the one, the question that I kind of got out of doing the political comparison here, and we don't want to get into the weeds too much because that's not what our show does, but, but we've talked about sensationalism quite a few times. And in the movie, we see how politics and the law is basically just people yelling over each other, which to me, Doesn't really seem like it's all that different from modern politics, uh, you know, just to be completely blunt. Um, But I guess I guess in terms of the reality of of, you know, where politics could go and how we've seen it, you know, basically evolve in or devolve rather in idiocracy. um, Does anyone want to call their shot on what they think will happen in terms of trajectory here? Do we think we, we careen closer to what we see? Or do you think we somehow, you know, retain a level of class within our, our political sphere?
2: I don't see that happening at all. I mean, when you see what's happening with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and Dan Crenshaw and and Mm -hmm. where they're just spewing out things that we know are not truthful. Because mm-hmm. it keeps them out, their name out there, and it entertains, the, you know, a certain segment of the population. I think that we're already eighty percent to where idiocracy is in just the fourteen years. So if you look mm-hmm. at idiocracy, you have to remember idiocracy is before Obama. We were still in the Bush, yeah. the second Bush era back then, and to see how much. Reality has changed in those times where you know we had hope when we had Obama, and now you see what's just happened in four years the last four and a half years where things have degraded so badly because we lost the class that we had. I'm not saying that Bush was a classy guy, but compared to Trump, he's Obama.
0: I mean he's definitely somebody I would want to invite over for dinner anytime soon. (laughs) But I mean, it's, 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 it's total truth though. And this is something that I, I was even, I wasn't even really sure if I wanted to ask the question because of how realistic, uh, modern politics really was there. There wasn't really even a comparison for me watching idiocracy again. Um, because I don't think really anything has changed. We're just as sensational, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the house of representing, as they called it in uh, in idiocracy, is really just a pulpit of people yelling at each other. I mean, it's it, you could turn on C-SPAN now. It's not nearly as spirited because they're mostly elderly people. But still, it's the same idea. You've got people who are just shouting over each other. Um, and so of all the things that uh, I was I was hopeful for there to be like a huge contrast here really isn't. I mean, the, the political sphere is just the same as it, as it is you know, now as it's depicted in this movie.
2: Yeah, but it's just, um, it was, I mean, I remember back in the late 2000s uh, while Bush was still president and when Obama became president where there was a sense of decorum.
0: And, you know, this is a ridiculous question that I wanted to leave off on, but I thought it was thought provoking enough. Will we ever replace water with something like Brondo? no
2: i don't think we'll ever become (laughs) that stupid (laughs) oh i i hope and pray that we don't (laughs) red bull
1: maybe maybe i've seen joe drink next year yeah
0: yeah i've seen joe drink enough red bull to where i could believe that a little bit um but tell you what edward this was great i i actually didn't even know about your your gun in 60 seconds connection before you came on the show so You have been a treasure trove of knowledge from the film industry um, and your personal connections to it. So we can't thank you enough for joining us there. Um, But we like to give you a few moments to talk about yourself, you know, before we sign off and um, you know, what's coming up next, you know, for the film jerk podcast.
2: Well, the next uh, few weeks I'm planning on shifting the tone where I'm trying to bring in. uh, I've never had guests on my show outside of one time Mm -hmm. when, Uh, My brother in law was visiting from Washington and he's very film knowledgeable and he's uh, much younger than I am. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was because uh, we, but I wanted to have a conversation about because I'm 53 and he's like 34. So I wanted to have that conversation about how the new generation sees 80s movies versus somebody who grew up in them. Because because he he was born at the fairy tale end of it while I remember the entire thing. And Mm -hmm. so so for I'm trying to get I'm in talks with several filmmakers, uh, Mm -hmm. including someone who uh, is a writer on a recent number one hit film uh, playing in theaters. Uh, I'm trying to get uh, somebody who's uh, written and directed a number of cult films over the years. I don't want to give any names, but I've already gotten there. Their agreements. Uh, I'm going to be talking to uh, a screenwriter who now uh, is a teacher at uh, one of our schools down here in Southern California, who teaches uh, screenwriting, um, and mm-hmm. he's a second-generation screenwriter. His dad uh, is also was also a screenwriter who wrote a number of great movies. Uh, but and uh, but basically, what I want to do is I want to bring in more people into that conversation than just me because as much as I do love to hear myself talk, even I get tired of hearing myself
1: talk sometimes. (laughs) Unfortunately, we have to say goodbye to idiocracy and trust us, we supersize with you. We hope you enjoyed getting to hear about the rich history of the film and how it's almost a cautionary tale should we focus too much on penis enlargement. As we mentioned often, please comment, subscribe, and leave a review. Not only does it help Mark get a good night's sleep, but it increases our chances to get noticed across the internet. We love to keep making content for you, and this critically helps us to continue.
0: Hey, do you miss video games? We do too. It's been a while since we dug into one. We couldn't think of a better way to revisit the games that made us than by exploring the lands of Hyrule mapping out a history of the zelda series there's so much content here that we're actually bringing someone along to help us a new co-host who we'll be introducing next week so stay tuned and until next time keep on dissecting